Welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast about neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. I'm Grace. I'm Josh. And I'm Connor. And the topic for this episode is optogenetics, which is fun. And so we're going to talk about it and what it is and how it got started and what it means to everyone today. Because if you have worked anywhere near neuroscience in the past 10 years, you've heard about the joys and wonders of optogenetics and its miraculous abilities to save us all. Wow, that sounded very sarcastic. But <laughs> yes, I actually agree, Grace, that you did previously sound, I wouldn't say lackluster, but you sounded like a serious news broadcaster introducing something terrible. Well, ironically, ironically we are more serious newscastery today because we have very fancy recording equipment. So, well, Recording equipment technically is the... Still a laptop, but we have. I guess this. No, this is recording equipment. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's transducing nice our vocalizations into electrical impulses, kind of like. I mean, basically, we're, we're playing with some new equipment, and we will buy better equipment to make it so that we're not recording from a microphone laptop. Or you laptop speak microphone. in the direction of your microphone. Yes, I know. Speak. And don't reveal Do our previous horrible amateurish techniques. Yeah, you may have noticed that previous podcasts sound terrible, or you may have just not listened to them because they sounded so terrible. <laughs> I finally convinced Josh and Grace that that was an important factor, yeah. and so here we are. Okay, optogenetics, right? Right. So broadly, um, it means light and genetics, uh, but really, what people in neuroscience talk about when they talk about optogenetics is this ability to stimulate cells using light. So you can make neurons active or inactive by shining light on them. And it's kind of complicated uh, how we got to this point where we could do that. So we can go through some of the history of that. But that is the broad idea, and it's influenced a lot of things because it's made it possible to do experiments that you couldn't do using standard stimulation techniques, like just sticking an electrode in and pulsing current through. So uh, that's why it's been exciting. And it has been exciting, so I'll stop sounding sarcastic about it. Um, so, I mean, basically, we're, you know, we're, we're talking right now in, in 2016, uh, early 2016. And 20, in 2015, people were dating that, like the 10-year anniversary of optogenetics. So there were some articles that came out where people kind of, you know, reviewed this, uh, the, the developments and trends that have occurred since there was like a 2005 paper that kind of marks the beginning of, of use of optical stimulation uh, of neurons to control their activity. And prior to that, people had figured out that there were proteins in algae, uh, even decades earlier, uh, that were photosensitive. And there, I mean, there's proteins in our eyes that are photosensitive. So sure, yeah, yeah. Throughout biology, there's been discoveries of different organisms that have different types of photosensitive proteins. But specifically, like, photosensitive ion channels, right? Right, yeah. So, so yeah, so the, the thing that people talk about uh, as being the revolution in neuroscience does really stem from this 2005 
uh, paper with Ed Boyden as the uh, first author in Carl Dyserol's lab at Stanford. And um, there were techniques before that that attempted to let neurons be controlled by light that were slightly different in style than the one that became the most popular. Yeah, what's the difference, actually? Like, Because I thought in that Q&A that we read in the Nature Neuroscience thing, there was one of the guys who did those papers. He was the senior author, and he was... He made it seem like they had channel, or sorry, they had put light-sensitive ion channels into neurons before yeah. that paper. So yeah, so that was in. So the the big one that the ten year anniversary was being celebrated for was in two thousand five, and in two thousand two there was a paper published that had um, this setup, which they were able to create an acronym called Charge that described it and I kind of wish that that was the one that had won because then you would call the neurons that had this ability charged neurons but (laughs) (laughs) things don't win in science for those reasons sometimes Um, (laughs) but yeah so in that one it was that you had something that was photosensitive that they got from the eyes of fruit flies and it connected to um, this like G-coupled protein type thing that could activate cells. So, so just just to be clear, so cells when they fire action potentials, fire because ions flow through channels essentially, and in their membrane. In their membrane, and the the G-coupled protein receptors are kind of an indirect mechanism, whereby receptors on the membrane are stimulated, and then kind of internal cellular processes modulate some thing about the cell but like the the ion channels themselves are usually not directly modulated in that case you know it's, it's more indirect um and so the kind of optogenetics that we use these days are the ion channels themselves are directly stimulated by light and so these these kind of other mechanisms and the, like the way the photosensitive pigments in like the eye or other kinds of settings work tend to be kind of more indirect mechanisms that like don't directly activate ion channels. Yeah, so the previous method was a bit clunkier, and this method that took off, which uses channel rhodopsin, um, is kind of sleeker and simpler, and it's a single gene that encodes it. So, th- But these genes came from uh, algae, right? Yeah, it is the... I have the Latin name. Clomid... Dominus Rina Hardy, something. It's a single celled algae, swims with two flagella found around the world, and it has this protein naturally occurring in it called channel rhodopsin um, that it probably uses to sense um, how deep in the water it is because light levels change with depth in water. Um, and so that's where they found this very nice uh, gene for this protein that they could then give to neurons so that neurons could now have an ion channel that responds to light. They Did they find? No, that people knew about this. Before. So people knew about that for a while. Uh, and in the years shortly before it was this, this uh, protein was expressed in neurons, it was expressed in other living tissue by people who also collaborated, it seems, on the, on the I believe, on the work to, to get it expressed in neurons. So it was expressed in other organ tissue. Yeah, so... In, in this 10-year uh, look back that we read in Nature Neuroscience, a lot of people were talking about how this idea was kind of in the air before it really, you know, took off and how people at various points had kind of considered this possibility of putting 
uh, something that responds to light into neurons to be able to control their activity. But no one had the guts to do it. Or actually, it seems uh, what really happened is that funding agencies wouldn't give you money to try it. So that's even what happened to the people who were successful. They, I think it's the case that they were rejected from normal grants to attempt this and something called the Pioneer Award um, was what ultimately gave them the ability to do this and that's a special type of grant that's supposed to be like high risk, high reward. It's an NIH founder. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting that this thing that now everyone cites is one of the most important things in neuroscience in decades and all of that and it's so revolutionary it like, you know, could have very well not really happened because people were just too cautious, I suppose, about attempting it. It's also interesting in that nature neuroscience kind of Q&A thing where various people give comments and answer various questions about it, about optogenetics. Um, it was interesting the way a lot of these people who now use it a lot, presumably in their work, um, they were asked if they knew or anticipated the huge effects that optogenetics would have when they first came across, say, that paper in 2005. And many of them were very skeptical and thought that it would you know, be very fiddly, not reproducible, not robust, that it would be very dependent on the parameters and so on, and the system that you used it in, um, which is kind of interesting. And yeah, and it turned out to be quite robust, and that surprised some people. I mean, I, I think the people, I was a little skeptical when there were people who kind of offhand said that they thought it would definitely work. Yeah. <laughs> you think that was hindsight? Yeah, that's a little bit of, it's ten, it's 10 years later, you kind of forgot that you were skeptical of it in the front end, or it's the kind of person maybe who's enthusiastic about everything and most of those things don't turn out to be as interesting. yeah exactly i thought that was funny because it's like you could read that maybe as an if you were not a practicing scientist which i guess we kind of are now um you might read that and be like oh scientists are so cautious like why are they always shutting people down who are innovators but like obviously you're skeptical and most of the time you're right to be skeptical right and then every so often you're skeptical and it turns out okay it actually worked really well yeah you know but I think in the, it's, it's easy to kind of sell that kind of thing in popular science reporting as like, ooh, those silly, cautious, you know, conservative yeah, like scientists. like the man holding everybody back yeah. just trying to advance science. But yeah, they also, um, people were saying how it seemed like there was a role played by how open the lab who started this was to share the reagents and the techniques and all that kind of stuff. Because usually... I mean, it's not the case that you read a paper that has a new method and then you just go and do that method and it's so easy. You just follow the step-by-step -step directions. You know, these things usually do require some fiddling and uh, things that maybe they don't think to put in the paper but were actually important for the ease of use. So it seemed like the, the culture that was around optogenetics, especially when it first started, was very much to share things. And, and help still, I think. Out. I mean, they yeah, still, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, they seem like a very generous network of, of labs that make it very accessible for, for new groups that are like from credible places to, to easily get the to And get it the could have regions. been different because I think someone else who was someone who, who had thought of this idea beforehand said that they were seeking a patent for something about it. So, I mean, people, uh, different labs very much execute their ideas very differently. And so this one is special partly just because of how it was executed. How does that kind of thing work? Like if someone discovered this and somehow patented it? I mean, if someone modified it, so if they were using a tweaked version of the gene, then they could distribute it however they wanted, right? The patent would only apply to the specific first version. Isn't it the case that, I don't know, but I thought it was the case that if it's not for commercial use, there's not much that a patent does? Yeah, no, so a lot of, a lot of 
I mean, no, so I mean, none of us are so big into mm-hmm. experiments, but I mean, a lot of reagents are purchased from big biotech companies, and they're sold, and a company could sell them, and if they didn't have a patent on it, other companies could sell them. So hypothetically, if this was a very useful tool that everyone wanted to use, uh, a you know, a big biotech company could be selling the thing at like a profit, not just like the shipping costs, um, and that would, I mean. I, I, you know, I, I'm kind of skeptical. I think many scientists are skeptical of the that in the context of science because it seems like oh, there aren't that many scientists. You know, like you're going to try to extract money from the scientists. You, you, like, especially if, as a scientist, if it was you know government funds that allowed you to do the research that you then want to patent, it, it seems a little unfair to many people in science and potentially to taxpayers. I think they would be right to be a little outraged about that because. You, you know, you, you were basically paid by the taxpayers to do your work and you're trying to like get double paid for it in a sense by also patenting it when uh, instead you could be essentially sharing uh, what you've been paid by the taxpayers to do and allowing other people to, to bootstrap off of that. How does that work actually? This is a real digression, but like, you know, if you do a bunch of stuff in Stanford as a lab in Stanford or something, they kind of automatically have some rights, right, to um, products. I mean, things can be patented, right? I mean, you can... No, no, I'm talking about the university. The university uh, patents... Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know all of the details about this. Depends on the university. If you do it at the university, the if you university do it at, will... If have you some use, rights to yeah, it. Yeah, if you use their tools, yeah. then they own the patent, I think. Yeah, I think so, right? And they, I mean, they it's really like funny you that for... that doesn't apply to, like, the government. If the government gave you a bunch of money... Oh, that the government doesn't own the patent, but the university does? Or, like, partial ownership over the patents. Yeah, Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean... Um, So we can go into a little bit more of the the mechanisms of this. Basically, there's, you know, this ion channel, and it has this component that uh, when activated by light of... So usually the the light has to be of a certain wavelength or a certain small range of wavelengths, so... I mean, what that means is that it's of different colors uh, for us. So, I mean, initially there was one channel rhodopsin or whatever that people were using, and it was activated by a certain you know, band or color of light. And now people have genetically engineered a whole kind of suite of optogenetic tools. So different proteins that do slightly different things to the cell, like inhibit or excite the cell, uh, and, and they're stimulated by different bands of frequ- of light frequency, so like different colors of light. So, And it, when the light hits it, there's this component called retinol, which is related to vitamin A, that uh, causes a change basically in the shape of the ion channel that allows it to open and let ions of a certain type come through, usually ions that are either positive or negatively charged, which is important to activating cells because cells get activated when their voltages reach a certain threshold. Um, and this is essentially the simplest mechanism that like cellular biologists could conceive of yeah. to activate cells by light. Just like to step back a slight, slightly just to just make kind of maybe to demystify something for people who don't know, like I almost I almost know nothing about it, but for people who know very little about, say, molecular biology or biophysics in this way, um, just like right, a protein is just a big, huge molecule. Um, and an ion channel is a protein, and it's sitting embedded in the membrane of a cell. Um, 
And so it is kind of just a very literal thing. There's some component of these opsins, the thing that Grace just mentioned, retinol, which absorbs light in the way that, you know, all molecules can to some extent. And it causes um, literally like a change in the shape of the protein. Yeah, it's like the different parts of the protein pull on each other until the protein's in a different shape. Yeah, and that different shape of the protein allows it to pass certain ions kind of through it. That's why it's called a channel. Yeah, so they they can can travel into or out of the cell. Yeah, travel across the cell membrane. And it was uh, found that... So this, this, as we said, this depends on retinol, and it happens to be the case that in uh, mammalian tissue... Actually, I think they said in all vertebrate tissue. I don't remember. Um, there happens to be sufficient amounts of retinol for this mechanism to work. So it could have been the case that there wasn't enough retinol for to make a bunch of cells in the brain uh, be able to function like this that didn't previously. Um, oh, I see. I didn't know that. So retinol is just like some molecule. That's, it's a molecule that that's gets embedded in the protein. And it like binds to the protein. Yeah. So it's not part of the protein. Yeah. Well, I mean, what does that mean? Yeah, okay. But it's yeah. not like... It's, it's not, not. It's not uh, genetically. Yeah, it's encoded. not genetically encoded. Yeah. Yeah. So there was. I think there was some fear that perhaps they would have had to throw in a retinol gene when we they to, like, put in these ion channel genes. Or yeah. Or uh, and so in animals that don't have enough, like in uh, I think C. elegans, the little worms, um, they enrich their diet with it. I think to make oh. them have enough. So yeah. So there's. I guess th- this is another reason why people were surprised by the ease of use of this is because there are all these things that can go Just coincidences. Wrong. Like yeah. essentially, there's a whole bunch yeah. of extra molecule that isn't being used natively in mammalian cells or whatever. Though to be fair, I mean they did obviously put a lot of work into actually making this yeah, work, took... and there were things that they had to engineer beyond the way the protein naturally was to make it really function. Yeah, I mean we yeah. There's this was like a huge engineering effort. To make all of this work so comfortably uh, beyond the sort of basic innovation and the basic success. So yeah, so they, they found this protein and they know the gene that codes for this protein. And so now they wanted to put it into neurons so that they could control the activity of neurons. And so there's basically two different ways that you can do that. One is to use a virus because the way a virus works is that it puts its DNA into the host cell's DNA. And so if you have a virus that has the gene for the ion channel in it and you inject it into a cell, it'll put that gene into that cell and it'll start producing that uh, protein, which is the ion channel. And then the other way is to genetically engineer animals to have that gene um, as part of their genome from the start. And usually it is placed in such a way that it kind of follows a gene of interest. So you could have the gene that marks all neurons and it doesn't show up in any other cells. So it's kind of like a marker for neurons in the body. And then you could have, following that gene, you'd have the gene for the ion channel so that all neurons are then expressing this ion channel and other cells are not. So those are the two main ways that people do it. There are a few core animals like flies and C. elegans, the worm and mice that we can actually genetically encode things from birth and for many other kinds of animals that you would instead use a viral vector because we don't as commonly genetically engineer them. Yeah, so there's a few different reasons why you might want to use one versus the other. Um, The viral vector is kind of nice because uh, you might not know all the genes that code for the specific types of cells you want, especially if you want to localize the 
the cells that have this channel to a certain part of the brain. You might not know the genetic marker for cells in the fourth layer of this certain area of cortex you're interested in or something. So if you have the virus, you can inject it just into that area and then you are spatially controlling uh, the cells that end up expressing this channel. But it might be less cell type specific. Yeah, so it's complicated. Um, You can do things to make it more cell type specific. You can genetically encode from birth something in the cells of interest that means that they are the only ones that will be receptive to the virus when you put it in. So that's a combination of kind of spatial and cell type specific. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do depending on what uh, things people are studying. They're going to combine all different things to get the cells that they want to have the amount of virus that they want. And briefly, maybe maybe it's worth talking about like how well we can control this. So we can control a lot about like the spatial or cell type uh, localization. I think uh, some people would say the cell type. Even I mean, you have to know some specific marker. Yeah, yeah. no, but so we can, the cell type you want, which isn't just neuron or not neuron. There's lots of different types of, of course. neurons. Yeah, so. yeah. So we can we can do that fairly well, but uh, we it's my understanding is that like the quantity of protein that's expressed this is this is more a comment about genetic engineering in general and less about optogenetics specifically but like we kind of cause the cells to just you know overexpress this protein like kind of all the time so it's like kind of chronically on and uh at least that's that's generically what is often done i mean there is there is talk in in one of the other papers, we talked about these principles of designing interpretable optogenic behavior experiments um, and, and other work where people talk about kind of the issues where like this, you know, so like in the original paper, uh, the 2005 paper, they did test that like the cells didn't die after a week of expressing this original variant of the gene. But since then, we now know that on kind of longer timescales, there can be like build up to a toxic level of the proteins when they, they're expressing genetic indicators, or uh, proteins, sorry. So yeah, there's different complications due to experimental design limitations and then also due to potential toxicity and um, not knowing exactly what cells you're hitting. And also in some situations, in some animals, you might get cells that are endogenously uh, receptive to light levels that could be affected. Or the heat from putting an LED into the head of the animal could affect it. So yeah, so the way that you end up stimulating these cells, you need to get light into the brain. So you usually, if you're doing kind of like a rodent study where the animal is running around doing a behavior and you want to stimulate certain cells, you cut a hole in the skull and you drop an LED into the area that has the cells that have the channel or the area of interest for you. And you turn that light on and off. Um, And then that controls uh, if those cells are being activated by the light. Or we didn't explicitly say, but you can also inactivate cells using... Uh, different types of channels. So they just change the flow of ions in the other direction so that you're not exciting the cell, you're inhibiting the cell. But the idea is the same. And they use different light uh, colors so that you can be turning on one population and turning off another uh, by having different LEDs in different locations. So halo rhodopsin uses chloride channels, right? Yes. So that's the different type of ion channel that lets uh, chloride ions into the cell, into, right? into the cell uh, to inhibit it. So there's also um, some people say that it would be better if it weren't light, but um, different types of electromagnetic radiation that may be able to penetrate better. 
um, especially if you're going to use this in larger animals like primates. I think there's some people feel, feel that there uh, is some issue about the light penetration and also the spread of it. If you want to be able to target things very specifically, it might be better to not be using light. And if that's the case, though, then you do want to wear like tinfoil hats. To... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I, well. <laughs> I mean, if someone it, injects, you know, optogenetic proteins into your brain you and like... they can stimulate them across the skull from a distance using like electromagnetic radiation, I then, feel... then we should all hide in the woods. <laughs> I feel like you're going to turn into an anti-vaxxer because you're going to think that they're genetically altering your neurons when they do it. <laughs> oh my God, they might do that. <laughs> That's crazy. Now they will because we said it. Yeah. We just gave them that. So, so yeah, the way, to, the, the way to control a population of a country is going to be to, in their vaccines, surreptitiously uh, inject them with... Uh, so inject surreptitiously with the vaccines a uh, viral vector to selectively infect certain kinds of neurons that will be responsive to electromagnetic radiation mm -hmm. transcranially. Yeah. See, I would almost be happy if that were possible because it would mean that we understood the brain a lot more than No, we did. because you could do things like just put them to sleep, for example. Okay, yeah, you could right. we could we know enough about the brain to be able to put people to yeah. sleep. Probably. That would be really useful. Like, imagine that for like riots, <laughs> right? Instead of having oh like a God. water cannon, they just have like a big light. Like, <laughs> no, but it's not even a light. It's yeah, a, yeah, it'd be like no, it'd be some, a, you know, some a ray gun, yeah, like a ray gun. But are a bunch of and everyone just falls asleep? Can you imagine that? Holy we God. have so much electromagnetic magnetic radiation around us already; it would really interfere. I think. Yeah, we'd have a lethargic population. It'd have to be like radio frequencies. Like, there's a specific one that you have to be on. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um... We should all go work for DARPA. Yeah, we do well. <laughs> God, that's creepy. So, okay, so we've talked a bit about what optogenetics is, kind of a little bit about its history, and how to get it into cells. So what are some cool things people have done with it? Well, we can say generically, kind of, it's advertised benefits compared yeah, why is to it previous good methods. Yeah, um, So... One is, as we talked about, this cell type specificity that you couldn't get if you were just sticking electrodes in and stimulating any cell that came in contact or near the electrode. Uh, you couldn't you know, say, oh, I only want the inhibitory cells or I only want the cells that express this protein. You, you can do that kind of thing. The other thing is the temporal control because it's light. So you turn the light on, you turn the light off. And especially in later models of this ion channel, it's been engineered to be very responsive. So it's kind of like as soon as you turn the light on, the cell might start firing, and as soon as you turn it off, it'll decay like really quickly. Oh so. yeah, and Dysroth, he came to Columbia last year and present Carl Dysroth, the guy who was the lead author on the 2005 paper, or the, not the lead author, the senior author on the 2005 paper. Um, he, I mean, he's they've done they engineer like all these crazy new tools all the time. One of the really cool ones was that they had like a switching one, where you could, a pulse of light would switch its state somehow, and it would just stay on. So you could like turn them on like. For like ages, and then I think it, and then a different frequency of light turned it off. Turned it off. These wow. kinds of things. Anyway, so they make all kinds of. Cool. Yeah. So there's all. They, it's very common uh, for people to talk about the optogenetic toolbox because they've or just created. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They just created all these different kinds of things to do whatever you may want. So those are kind of the two main things that are really different from any previous techniques. So like a previous very common technique for stimulating neurons, right, was just kind of mic electrical microstimulation, where you just sort of 
put ele- electrical electrodes into the, some brain area and just run uh, current of various kind of frequencies and such. And so like people do that and have there have been like many, many studies for decades doing that, I guess. Also very useful. Also very useful. And, and the temporal, many discoveries. Temporal, temporal so control, good, yeah, is fine for that. But, the but it's like super, yeah. but like not even specificity at the level of like, you know, cell type or... Um, it's just a whole big region of the brain. Off, or a whole, I mean, it depends on the size of it. But you can't target like a specific neuron easily unless you're patched to that. You neuron. don't even really know what it does, right? Yeah. Sure. Your, yeah. Like if you had a single neuron, you could know. Because you yeah, could like... You can stimulate a specific neuron with electricity. It's membrane. That, yeah. But if you just like run current of different frequencies into a brain area, what exactly it does is Because you could quite be exciting inhibitory cells that actually inhibit things or exciting excitatory cells so much that they're not firing yeah. anymore. And like, it's, yeah, it's, and there's similar problems, of course, with optogenetics. If you try to just, say, excite all of the excitatory neurons in an area, then those excitatory neurons will excite inhibitory neurons, which will inhibit those excitatory neurons. But like, at least you kind of know where... That's what you're doing, yeah. Yeah, at least you know where it begins, whereas in the electrical case, it's sort of all kinds of things could be happening. All, sure. all and so there were previous methods that allowed for cell specificity to some degree, including um, these like viral methods where you're targeting cells that have a certain gene in them and that kind of thing. Um, but the temporal resolution for those was bad. So it was either you created a mouse line that just never had a certain type of cell to begin with and see what happens. And so that's like the lifetime of the mouse is the temporal scale for that rather than just being able to shut off certain cells. Or you uh, can inject like mucimol is a substance that tends to just shut down a lot of cells. So you kind of like turn off a brain area by injecting mucimol into it, but you're turning everything off there. So it's not so specific. And the time course is, you know, like you can't just switch that on and off on the scale of seconds. That's kind of minutes to maybe even hours to, for the effect to wear off if you're using pharmacology in that way. Yeah. And so there kind of, uh, there, there were also other techniques using microscopy. So like for a while, uncaging started being very popular. So the idea there is that there would be uh, inside of a cell, you would have a uh, some chemical that like a, a neurotransmitter, for example, that would activate the cell or, or deactivate the cell, and it would be bound to something, and then you could stimulate the thing that was that it was caged in. So the, the, you know, the, the thing that would activate the cell was caged in some other uh, molecule, and by zapping that caging molecule with light, you could release that ke- the, the the chemical that it had caged, and it would activate the cell or something like this. And so that, that was kind of another thing that you could do with optical methods as well. But I think now that's presumably, I mean, so people were using that for a bit, but I think that's less popular now because optogenetics is pretty useful. I, I don't know if people are still using that a lot. I th- presumably there's a lot of flexibility there because you can use optics to control a specific uh, chemical they're using, you know, microscopy. I think, like, people still use uncaging for, like, super spatially specific things sometimes, sure. right? Like, uncaging, like, on certain parts of dendritic tree. Sure. Yeah, yeah. In slice and stuff like that. So that's highly specific. Though there is also a push, again, some of the same characters who would do uncaging for what's referred to, like, all optical kinds of setups. So in parallel with using light to, to stimulate cells, I mean, it's very natural as biologists to use microscopes to image tissue and artificially cells can be made to when active change their 
fluorescence activity. So you basically can record movies that correspond to the activity either indirectly through calcium or directly the voltage, less commonly, directly the voltage of the cell. And so you can kind of take movies of the activity of a population of cells and the sort of dream of all optical experiments uh, that is, is kind of becoming feasible now is to simultaneously be recording these sort of optical movies of the activity of a whole population of cells that you're recording and stimulate at single cell resolution a bunch of cells, for example, using optogenetics. And to be clear, some people um, actually use the phrase optogenetics to refer to any situation where you're encoding a gene that gives the cell some light-related activity that it didn't have. So if you give the cell the ability to produce light when Well, or at least active, change its fluorescence. Yeah, patterns. change its fluorescence, but pr yeah. produce some sort of visual output in that way uh, when it's active. That's also, to some people, a form of optogenetics. And just to be clear about when, when we say fluorescence, the reason it's not like producing light, it's like in order for the the in order for you to be able to image the tissue, you still zap it with a laser and then it emits light. It's just depending on the state of the cell, like depending on the activity level of the cell, the wavelength of light that it emits will be different. So that, that's what that's kind of how the the indicators work at a very high level. There's also optogenetic tools that were mentioned in some of the reviews we looked at that are not just, say, you can put things other than ion channels into the membrane. So you can have um, other, basically other kind of membrane proteins that are activated by light. So proteins that are coupled to some complex biophysical machinery inside the cell, which is actually kind of like the original thing, the whatever those things, whatever those options are in the retina. Yeah, the but G so, protein coupled things. Yeah. So you can change other like other biophysical processes in the cells. Yeah, but those don't seem as common now, but it seems like a lot of people want that to be a direction that this goes, particularly if you could get to kind of changing the expression of different gene levels via light. So you can hit the cell with light and it leads to a complicated process that eventually gets to the nucleus of the cell and is changing gene expression or uses some mechanism to change gene expression. That would obviously be like, there's like so many things you could do if you had like fine control over this. I, well, that's true. So to me, like the reason that optogenetics works, given the level of neuroscience knowledge that people have, the reason it's caught on so much is because it's so simple, right? It is just yeah. causing a cell to fire or be inhibited based on like the crudest mechanism we know, like just directly messing with the ion channels. Yeah. And so I think there's kind of a feeling that you can control the cells without having to know too much about them and it allows us to learn more about them. Sure. Many of these other kinds of things are you in a sense know. more complicated. You have, to, you have to know a lot about the cell in order to be able to use those techniques. Or develop the techniques. Well, develop the techniques, but even to do scientific inquiry uh, with like kind of long timescale indirect methods where you're stimulating a cell with an optical uh, tool, but you know it's going to have a very indirect effect. I mean, on... I think a lot of people feel like they, you know, they have some reason to believe that a certain gene is involved in something, and if they want to Turn test it, on it and off during yeah. the course of an experiment, that would be really... yeah, uh, yeah. So like genes that control, it... if there was a gene that controlled like synaptic plasticity or something, or I mean, it's conceivable, right? I mean, there are genes that are involved. If you could like temporarily make a certain brain area not plastic or something, or a certain set of neurons not plastic. You, you could... would need to know the time course of the gene expression, so you maybe stimulate the cell with light, weight, hours or days, or whatever you think to be the yeah. case for that Yeah, gene. but it, and if you're switching to that slow time scale for the course of the experiment, it's not clear that you need light. 
to be the thing that turns it on and off. That's that was more. Yeah, more no, that would be more for the specificity of the cells that you're hitting, probably sure. than anything else. But you, you, I mean, you might be able to selectively activate a subtype of cell with uh, a drug that you administer to the animal. So the question, so if it's if you already know, if you can already ident- genetically identify the cell type you want to mess with, and you also know something about the genetics within that cell that are controlling the process you're interested in, the question is, why do you need to? do all this with some opto tool I don't know yeah I mean maybe you need cell type and location or right, something right. like that cell type in a certain place yeah. it, it seems which actually so... was totally plausible right because it could be like inhibitory neurons mm-hmm. which are everywhere or like you know PV expressing inhibitory neurons I would say just want to do it in some, yeah. some specific brain region yeah. sure there's a lot of situations where it's like for some weird reason you can't do the most straightforward thing and then people need workarounds. So usually when people use these tools, they're combining it with a bunch of other standard, more standard tools anyways, and it's kind of a hodgepodge just to get the effect that they're aiming for. So what kind of studies have these actually been used in? Um, so one of the interesting things that you can do is that you can... Uh, put the channels into a cell of interest and so ordinarily maybe you would have certain cells in the brain expressing these channels and you would hit them with light and they would become active and then you could see what happens in other brain regions or to other cells in the same region but you can also put these channels in the cells and then shine light into an area that you know that those cells project to and you can stimulate only the cell terminals in that area so you're studying a very particular projection of cells in one area to another area without the complication of uh, kind of activating all the other areas that that brain region might connect to. And so that's something that's been very difficult to do in the past and has been made possible by optogenetics, which can really help dissociate um, the actual effects of particular connections because a lot of times kind of everything's connected to everything in complicated ways. And so when you stimulate one brain region, you don't know if you're directly activating another brain region or if there's some kind of loop or something like that intermediate area and so being able to target specific projections has been very helpful there is of course this caveat people always mention right which is that oftentimes if you elicit if spikes occur in the axons of neurons which are the you know outgoing part of the neuron then those spikes can quote unquote back propagate to the soma and potentially cause spikes to travel down other axons which are some other projection that you didn't want to activate so that's like a problem that can happen there's also been experiments that utilize the fine temporal resolution to look at things like um, things that you consider related to decision making or kind of like when you're about to do something. It, there's a lot of areas in the brain that people believe kind of integrate and the activity kind of goes up slowly over time until it gets to a point where something happens, where the animal, you know, uh, shows its decision by moving a certain way or something like that. And so you can see what happens if you shut down those brain areas at different points throughout that integration. So you can see if it really is, you know, oh, is it just when it gets to this time it makes a decision or does the neural activity need to be at a certain level? And so if I shut it down early, will it take longer to get to that level? You know, like shut it off and then turn it and then uh, let the cells go back on and see kind of how activity recovers, that kind of thing. And so these are, I mean, these are pretty big and central questions in neuroscience, right? I mean, when we're, tr- we don't know how people come to decisions and there's lots of interest in how brain areas gradually over time integrate information that the organism acquires in order to, f- for the brain to decide upon something. And so like, 
you know, the temporal specificity here and the, the brain region specificity here is, is like, that's a, that's a very big deal when it comes to trying to tease apart mechanistically what's going on during this integration process. That's, a, that's like, uh, I would say, a very kind of major thing that we, we had, it was hard, it would, be, it would have been hard to do without these kinds of tools. Why, yeah, can't, why these, can't you do that with electrical simulation? Well, it's, I mean, it would be difficult to target the cells and to turn them off via electrical stimulation. That's something yeah. that's kind of specific. So yeah. you can turn cells off, as we said, by having different types of ion channels. You can also put excitatory, the, the ion channels that would excite a cell into inhibitory cells and just kind of blast the inhibitory cells so that they shut down the excitatory cells that are near them. Um, yeah, so like electrical stimulation, somehow, I don't know why, is because the, there's more excitatory cells or something, tends to be tends to have been used in a sort of way where you kind of turns up on. You kind of typically think of it as turning areas yeah. on somehow. And because it's it's itself kind of an excitatory usually the way it's applied, although you could, I guess. Could it could be I mean it could be the case that when you stimulate a brain region you just kind of interfere with its processing and yeah. it's just less it, it's it kind of turns out like yeah. Right. yeah, so I think there probably have been studies related to this where you did where people did electrical stimulation and just interfered with the integration um but so basically what a lot of people were saying in these review articles is that the first round of experiments that were done with optogenetics was to verify a yeah. bunch of stuff that people kind of already thought was true based on older methods. And, and, and more just this, I mean, this really enables you to do this kind of like in, in a higher level of resolution to parse what parts of neuronal circuits are actually implementing what you think they're supposed to be implementing. Yeah. And I actually just uh, read a paper the other day that used this means of shutting a brain area down by activating the inhibitory cells to kind of test out the role of input to an area versus the recurrent connections in an area in terms of um, what keeps the activity there going. So you can either turn off the input to that area very quickly and see if that area um, keeps being active or if its activity goes down, or you can turn off the area itself um, and kind of use different methods to measure what the impact of the input alone would be to that area. So those kinds of things are interesting. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and this relates to something that people consider kind of a problem still with optogenetics, is this idea that uh, you are still kind of blasting all the cells that you're targeting kind of with uniform uh, activation, or at least if there's differences in activation, it's due to differences in protein expression that you can't control or differences in light levels that you're not intending. So if you're not blasting them all the same way, you're only accidentally not blasting them all the same way. Um, and so really, I mean, people believe that the patterns, the relative patterns of activities in neurons are important. And so you want to be able to kind of control which cells precisely you're turning on and ideally how much you're turning each of them on. And so there's this method where um, there's something called CFOS, which is an immediate early gene, and basically what it means for neuroscientists is that when um, you can make it such that when a cell has high levels of activity, it produces this CFOS gene that can then lead the cell to produce channel rhodopsin or whatever ion channel you want it to produce. And so you can make this cascade only be possible for a short window. So you can basically say, I want to label all the cells in this brain region that are active during this particular time with channel rhodopsin. And so now you uh, have a subset of cells that only have channel rhodopsin if they had high levels of activity. And so people have used that to do this really cool experiment where um, they put an animal in an environment 
and they saw which cells that represent the environment were active in that environment. So from a whole population that kind of represents environments generally, they saw which ones were active in that particular environment, and they had those cells express channel rhodopsin. And then later on, when the animal was not in that environment, they shown they shined the light on the cells to uh, activate those particular cells, and then also gave an aversive stimulus to the animal, so like a foot shock or something like that. And what this effectively did was kind of make the animal then afraid of that environment, as though they had received the foot shock in that environment. Can we and, go through that again? Because like this is a really cool experiment, and I, I did quite follow like the whole thing. So it's a this Tonagawa guy, right? He's at Riken, he's Nobel Prize winning dude, right? So his lab, yeah. So what's the brain area? So it's in the dentate gyrus. Yeah. So um, they, they looked at neurons in the dentate gyrus and CA1 or something, So which are two different parts of the hippocampus, which is this place that's famously involved in memory, people think, and also in spatial navigation somehow. And those are like the two ways people think of it, the hippocampus. But in this case, they're thinking of it as like a memory-related circuit. Well, spatial memory, specifically. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Memory, memory, memory. For memory for different location. spatial... Yeah contexts right I mean, yeah as opposed to locations in this case sure. the difference is yeah, whatever that is and so in that area when an animal is in a certain environment a subset of itself will be active and a different subset will be active in a different environment right so and in so one environment they would they it would be in one environment they would have they would do some manipulation such that the cells during a certain time window which would be the time window when they're in the environment will start producing CFOS yeah right? Okay, so, uh, the, so those cells that are kind of specific to that environment are producing CFOS now. Um, yeah, I think they're always producing like, CFOS when they're active, but they can control the time window where CFOS oh, leads controls. to the production Sorry, of yeah, yeah, yeah. channel adaptation. So they're always producing CFOS when they're active, but they have this genetic manipulation which says, okay, now the cells that are like active now, i.e. producing CFOS, because this thing is kind of somehow under the control of CFOS in the mm-hmm. animal, they, they start producing channel adaptation. So they can kind of label... Uh, cells that are active at a certain time with channel rhodopsin make them express channel rhodopsin yeah okay so it's the like dentate gyrus context a cells the ones that are on in context a yep. now have channel rhodopsin in them yes okay and cells that weren't on in that time don't yeah that's important yeah and so then you put the animal not in context a anymore and somewhere else yeah. and when you shine light on the dentate gyrus that brain region the cells that are now producing channel adoption will become active. And the belief is kind of like now the animal thinks it's in that environment in some way, or it's just, it's now like open to creating associations that have to do with that environment because that the representation of that environment has been uh, activated yeah. in its So in somehow its like the memory or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Obviously that's kind of yeah. a vague notion. Right? And so kind of the normal setup for these kinds of experiments where you test you know, if you can get an animal to become afraid of an environment would be that you put it in that environment, you give it a foot shock or something negative, and then you put it back in that environment and see if it freezes or be- does other kinds of behavior that suggests that it's uncomfortable in that environment. So, yeah, so it's like, learned to associate the environment with bad things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing so it's, signs of fear now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so basically they did that experiment, but instead of actually putting the animal in the environment when they gave it the foot shock, they stimulated the cells that represent that environment and gave it a foot shock and then put it into the environment and could test if it shows signs of fear. So they, they had like so the, it shows fear in the real environment after association in a different environment, but when stimulated. Yeah. So it's in a different environment and they're kind of saying, 
we're going to sort of elicit the memory of environment A in environment B by, by stimulating. And we're going to pair that kind of evoked memory with a woodchuck, say. Yeah. Somehow. And then they go back to the actual environment A. And it turns out the previous pairing of the memory of environment A with a negative stimulus is enough to elicit fear when it's actually in environment A. Yeah. Which is and kind of so, crazy. Yeah. And again, there would be really no way to do this um, without this ability to label the cells that were active and then stimulate those cells only because yeah. that pattern of activity is what represents the environment. You couldn't just stimulate that area because you wouldn't be um, there wouldn't be an associate association with a particular environment then. Yeah, that's very nice. So a whole nother line of thing that people want to do is potentially use optogenetics for like clinical purposes in a few different settings. You know, so like, you know, if you could, you, people also, neuroscience research has led to neurosurgeons implanting in people like deep brain stimulators. So like basically electrode systems, kind of like a pacemaker in a certain part of the brain, with relatively kind of low resolution stimulation capabilities of an electrical sort. But the success of that for certain kinds of diseases, uh, which we can talk about another time. Uh, the success of that has kind of led to some interest in potentially using optogenetic tools as a way of more, in a more more high resolution way, stimulating specific parts of, let's say, a, hum a, a diseased human brain to cause, you know, some benefits to them with respect to some disease. Um, so that that's one class of things that would be potentially of interest. Kind of the simpler, uh, an even simpler thing that people are doing like more immediately is using optogenetics in the eye to rehabilitate people who have diseased eyes. Um, so there are various reasons that people go blind. Commonly, it's a, like a, there, there are a common de like degenerative diseases. So the retina, which is the part of the eye that's photosensitive, is a part of the brain. And that tissue can succumb to many different illnesses. And, and there are many different ways that people actually want to remedy this. So like there's at least two classes of ways that people want to treat blindness using optogenetics, which so we're parsing this down a lot. But the so one of the ways to treat blindness would be to take the output cells of the retina, which also tile the retina, and cause them to be photosensitive directly. It's usually the case that there are the rods and cones, which are the photoreceptors of the cell, give input because they are responsive to light they give input to these other cells that then exit the retina yeah so but if you have a disease where the rods and cones are degenerated then all you have left are these other cells these these output cells and there's like a huge amount of processing that goes in before things get to these output cells these retinal ganglion cells but basically you know one the retina itself is like a fairly complicated neural circuit which yes, maybe yes. is not obvious to most people yeah there's a bunch of processing that goes on there um and people study this a lot. So one way, though, is to just, like, cause these things to be photosensitive and then have the brain kind of learn to process these new totally artificial, artificial like, light signals from the retina. Which is not drastically different from, like, cochlear implants. I mean, those sure. are kind yeah. of artificial and people have to learn to process them and they're still, like, you know, not as optimal as the natural ear is and I think they still have difficulty in that way so it's it's in line with 
other means of rehabilitating right. people. Cochlear implants now, they kind of go in, right? And they kind of curl around and it's a microphone. Yeah. It turns into different frequencies. Yeah, so they do a decomposition and they like send via electrodes to different parts of the cochlea signals from the sort of sound range that that part of the cochlea would most likely have received. Usually, yeah, received. Yeah. But so there is precedent for people being able to, to learn, learn, to process yeah. what would kind of slightly semi-nonsensical sig- signals from the periphery. So that, that's, that's one <laughs> thing. My understanding is more people maybe actually think you would use optogenetics to, uh, you, you might actually artificially stimulate retinal ganglion cells with a pattern, not from the eye natively receiving them, but you would like, put a little optogenetic stimulator in the eye as well or something, and you'd have like a camera. So you'd, you'd have like a camera that picks up light outside of your eye, like mounted on your head or something like this. Yeah. And you would use optogenetics or just an electrode. People have tried this with just electrodes as well to artificially stimulate the retinal ganglion cell output layer of the retina. So, so that- it's not really utilizing the fact that optogenetics is responsive to light because it's using a camera to respond to light and then the camera turns that into a signal that can go into the yeah it's just it's just a coincidence that the way you're going to (laughs) stimulate photosensitive parts of the brain so like the retina is like a photosensitive part of the brain and it's just in this case it's just a coincidence that you're gonna yeah unless you do the more hacky thing which is put the channel or or the whatever channel whatever option Yeah. yeah Into the retinal ganglion cells, the retinal ganglion cells and let the brain yeah. learn to respond Which to is, that. Figure it, out. it just feels a lot more elegant. It probably it doesn't does work like as a, well though yeah. because you need the pre-processing that the camera could give you or some chip could give you. But yeah, so it, this it's yeah. an interesting question. Even it, yeah. it'd be really cool to just do that, like in a in some kind of people have done this in animals, right? I mean, to some extent. So it'd be really yeah. interesting to know behaviorally how much they can just learn. I mean, so a lot of it has been done in rodents, which have limited. I mean, it's it's hard to test their acuity because it's not their main sense. I think so. I don't know. I just think this is an amusing. You could do it in a primate, though, right? Yeah, you can put it. You could put it in. One of the papers we read claimed, or something, was saying that there isn't a model of retinal degeneration in primates, so they couldn't like fully test its ability to restore. Because they don't have a primate that has like a messed up. But it seems like it would be so easy to just kill off rods and cones. Maybe that's like an ethical thing. Oh, they're not supposed to like gouge out the. So so yeah. So I I do think it's you know it's it, it is amusing to me that there are these kind of right. There's like one part of the brain basically, that's natively responsive to light, the eye. And one way of rehabilitating it would be to use optogenetics to bypass the sort of damaged, light-sensitive part of the eye. But sort of, you might also just use optogenetics as like a high-resolution ability to stimulate neurons in a controlled fashion, which kind of gets at a use of computational tools in this case, right? So, you know, if you want to stimulate in any case, so this could be in the cortex, this could be in the eye. If you have the ability ostensibly to control a whole bunch of neurons. In order to get the neurons to do what you want, you actually need to do more complicated things in some cases than just like this one stimulate on, them. This one, yeah. this one on, this one off. You need to because like, they're interacting with each other. So because they're interacting, you need to kind of have a model. from what you do to what actually happens, happens is complicated. Is complicated yeah. yeah, so you, so you need to like kind of have a model of how the neurons might interact or how the neurons will respond to light and then you need to use kind of standard engineering tools yeah, so or, this is like or a, some custom it's a control problem, right? It becomes Any a control engineer problem. would be like, yeah, yeah obviously you're not, you, you need to have like kind of infinitely fast, infinitely precise control or something to not have to do these kind of things. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, in practical settings in engineering, like if, you know, if you've got a thermostat for a whole building, you don't just like turn the thermostat on when it's, you know, too cold. You don't just adjust it 
and ex- like wait the two days before the building heats up. You kind of have to predictively use your thermostat. Similarly, when you have a whole bunch of neurons that are interacting, you actually have to kind of predictively know how to play them with guesses as to how, what the consequences of playing them will be because you, you can't do this kind of with infinite feedback, infinitely fast feedback. So this would require... Some kind, kind of a of lot of computational tools. Yeah, yeah. modeling and computation. Of the... Yeah, so again, in that uh, review, people were citing this idea that kind of we need to understand better or have models that we're trying to test specifically, and then optogenetics needs to advance a bit so that you can more precisely uh, play the piano of neurons, as, as they say. say. Yeah. <laughs> so a question that I have is, and this was asked of... Um, other people uh, in the review is, you know, did this really lead to any breakthroughs in brain understanding, or is it kind of just a refining of the general concepts that we already have? And it seems like most people said, like, at least not yet. There's nothing been, there's nothing that's been a big breakthrough. Have there been yet. any breakthroughs in brain understanding? Is, are there breakthroughs in science ever? Yeah. I think you just slowly learn new things for the most part. For the most part. I mean, right. some some fields are more. What do you mean? Yeah, what's a breakthrough? Yeah. How many breakthroughs? So I, yeah, I mean, I physics? think what's yeah, what's interesting. I mean, like, maybe we're just naive and in domain, and so our our horizons are fairly narrow or something. Yeah. But I I do think that, and I think a lot of physicists maybe gradually come to this understanding when they study neuroscience for a while. I'm not. I don't have a physics background, but this seems to be my impression. Neuroscience is just really complex. Biology in general is quite complex, but neuroscience in particular is extremely complex. So it isn't necessarily the case you would expect, like, we're going to have, like, a four-parameter model that's going to solve the brain, right? I mean, we, we know that The that's... brain has more than four parameters. <laughs> <laughs> pretty obvious. But like, like, so in physics, people expect to get kind of elegant, simple, intuitively interpretable, once you know enough math, right? Intuitively interpretable kinds of understandings of things. And I think in neuroscience... There aren't simple conclusions. There's a lot of messiness to it. There's and so also... it's not that you would expect a breakthrough. There can be breakthroughs in tools. And I think people consider optogenetics a breakthrough with respect to tools, just like maybe fMRI was before that or, or other tools. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that you should have sort of... I mean, there, there, there clearly can be like big scientific insights, but it's not clear that they would be like... Breakthrough. Yeah. What will, what will it mean for there to be a breakthrough? It would mean to like understand a whole system or something like that. But I think it's also the case, I mean, usually people talk of breakthroughs and kind of like paradigm shifts as something of the similar of a, a similar family. And what that would require is that we had some kind of strongly yeah, yeah, no we paradigm. had a paradigm. Mm-hmm. We had some strongly held belief about how the brain works that could be overturned. And really it's like if we found out that glial yeah. cells were more important than neurons, that would be then. <laughs> that would be a paradigm shift. Yeah, so that would, but we don't that would have... be a paradigm shift. That would yeah. be a paradigm shift. Or like, yeah, there are a few things, but the thing, thing is, like, the things that we know are so basic that we know really concretely that you could call paradigms or something. Yeah. If, they, if they're wrong, like, to we're behavior. back to page zero. So that would be just terrible. So like, we should hope that that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, but that's always what is hoped when you're in a paradigm. Yeah, but... So like, yeah. But it doesn't but, feel like page zero. Like if... if well, I guess it could be. Yeah, so I mean, it's in the scale of the I think the, the glial example is, I think maybe it's a common example that people come up with when talking about like a neuroscience paradigm. Like that's kind of one of the only things that people most of the feel cells like, in the brain are actually glia, which are these other things. Yeah, they're which, supportive cells. Uh, thought I mean, to be know, kind of more, they're more like the immune system, you know, yeah. or or the structural in the vasculature. paradigm. 
the yeah, current part of yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, like, if it turned out that all of the interesting computations of the brain were really conducted by glia, yeah, and like the neurals, all the neural signaling was like an happy phenomenon. Yeah, it was just correlated to the actual yeah, computation so, of it. That that seems, <laughs> you know, that seems to us unlikely. But if that were true, you know, if we somehow definitively found that out, but I feel like we can't even but come up with many. <laughs> yeah, optogenetics won't do it. But <laughs> I feel like we can't really come up with any even possible examples of other paradigm shifts because there isn't that many paradigms yeah, just... so the paradigm is it's neurons it's like i don't know so like, spikes being important like maybe yeah, yeah. spikes are an epiphenomenon i don't even know or <laughs> yeah how they're generated right? like so. for example in computational modeling people kind of treat rates like well i don't, I don't want to get it like though there's there's a debates as to how important spike timing versus rates are but more more just that the spiking events are kind of sufficient descriptions of what's going on mm-hmm. and we kind of know that like different neurons release different chemicals and there can be kind of secondary neurotransmitters that are co-released with sort of uh you know when a neuron's active and so like you can have kind of neuromodulatory effects that are chemically mediated in addition to sort of direct communication from one neuron to another and the shape of the spike could be important right so yeah so there's like that all would these, be very surprising yes. but you know but there's all these very complicated things and so if those things turn out to be kind of as important as the spiking activity then that kind of computational simplification would 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 break down break down a bit wait so breakthroughs but yeah so maybe there aren't any like obvious breakthroughs and also like scientists don't want to say breakthrough i mean it yeah. just sounds so ridiculous well if, if you're selling your science yeah okay yeah. scientists who like are trying to publish nature papers say that they've made breakthroughs but they're lying kind of or like other people no whatever no one's gonna say or it depends on like breakthroughs can come in many sizes although you tools can make a tools can be small breakthrough a small breakthrough you break through a small yeah. weak feeble barrier <laughs> but it's a <laughs> breakthrough a nonetheless breakthrough, yeah I suppose that's right. Yeah, it depends on your perspective what you would consider a breakthrough. If you care very much about something very specific, it might feel like a breakthrough. If you I mean, I make breakthroughs on a like oh, yeah, monthly basis yeah. on that, on that, <laughs> by that measure. If you worked on something really tiny for 20 years and then you solve it, that's that's going to mean something to you yeah. and you're going to call You'll it You'll be solving it at your desk job in some insurance company because <laughs> you won't have gotten a job. But science is so horribly competitive. Okay. But yeah, so anyway, the point being, not many scientists are going to be like, oh yeah, there's been 25 breakthroughs because of optogenetics. But like, <laughs> what are some of the thing, good things? Like that, well, Also, we've, we've, we've covered, covered them. The, the memory thing was pretty awesome. Were you here for this podcast? No? Oh, yeah, sleep. <laughs> Um, and then there's like the, the kind of some of the interesting clinical applications, and then the possibilities for kind of all optical experiments. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about the mm-hmm. idea that you could um, get rid of pain in humans. Right. That's Carl Dyserath's company's idea. Is that because um, if you're targeting peripheral neurons that are perhaps responsible for chronic pain in certain brain areas, you wouldn't have to go into the brain to turn those off with optogenetics, so you wouldn't have to cut the skull open or worry about anything like that. You could target them at the spinal cord level, uh, so there's a potential for a real clinical application of optogenetics that can come before we solve the messiness of what to do with the skull. So that's, uh, that's optogenetics. Uh, it's a very cool tool, and uh, it's definitely going to be a big part of neuroscience for quite a while, it seems like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow, that was such an anti-climax. 
Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>